Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Show. Whether you are a seasoned investor or building a new real estate business, this is the show for you. Whitney Sewell talks to top experts in the business. Our goal is to help you master real estate syndication. And now your host, Whitney Sewell. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, our guest is James Dolly. Thanks for being on the show, James. Thank you for having me on. James is a practicing emergency physician who founded the White Coat Investor in 2011 to help doctors get their fair shake on Wall Street. He personally uses a portfolio of stock and bond index funds, real estate, and small businesses. A reasonable low-cost portfolio, if funded adequately, can help any investor to reach their financial goals. James, Thank you. Or do you go by Jim? Should I call you Jim? Jim's what I usually use. That's great, though. All right, Jim. Well, the credit card companies certainly call me James. <laughs> so you know who it is when they're calling, right? So, Jim, welcome to the show. Grateful to have you on and just your expertise. We love interviewing investors as well, and you know, and people that are assessing deals and their portfolio and, and helping other investors think about their portfolio. You know, why don't you elaborate a little bit on what the white coat investor is and how, you know, let's get into how you use real estate as part of your portfolio as well. Sure. Well, the White Coat Investor was founded in 2011. At that point, I was about five years out of my residency training. But I discovered about halfway through residency that I'd been ripped off by about every kind of financial professional there is. Realtors, appraisers, recruiters, insurance agents, financial advisors. And I just decided as a doc, I was just going to be continue to be taken advantage of for my entire life if I didn't learn something about finance and investment and business. So I kind of embarked on that process starting about halfway through my residency. And after a few years of reading books and interacting with people online and reading blogs, I realized I was doing a lot more teaching than I was learning and that nobody was teaching this stuff to doctors. So in 2011, I founded the White Coat Investor. It was originally a blog and it rapidly grew, you know, because there's really nobody else teaching this stuff to doctors and similar high-income professionals. And so now it's a podcast and a video cast and an annual conference and online courses. And I've got three books out and it's kind of a multimedia empire, if you will, that's entirely focused on helping doctors to get a fair shake, to understand the financial world, become financially literate and uh, be connected with the good guys in the industry. No, that is awesome. It's great to have a place like that to go to when you have questions about these things, especially I can imagine, especially if you're a new doctor. I mean, you've been entrenched in school for a long time, right? And you're getting maybe your career going. It's hard to know who to trust when you're thinking about, okay, now where do I go to get guidance on investing? So, you know, why don't we jump in a little bit to how you help people think through their portfolio and how they use real estate as part of that? Sure. When I started investing, probably my first real estate investment was a simple real estate investment trust index fund. You know, just going to Vanguard, buying the REIT index fund. And, you know, a lot of people deride it as real estate flavored stock, but it certainly gave me some real estate exposure. And so for a number of years, that was my only real estate investment. The next real estate investment I had is what a lot of people have experienced, particularly if they bought a home anytime in the 2004 to 2007 range, is I became an accidental landlord. I had to move away and could not sell the home for any reasonable price and I ended up renting it out. And obviously, when you fall into an accidental landlord kind of situation, you don't usually make money. You're usually just trying to lose as little as possible. And it wasn't very fun. I was managing a rental from out of state, trying to hire good property managers, which is always a struggle, especially when you're out of state. And eventually sold nine years after buying the home, still at a loss. 
And, you know, I didn't have a great experience. I didn't really enjoy it. I didn't think I was particularly good at it. And so I resolved, well, if I'm going to do real estate, I think I'm better off putting my active efforts into my practice, into my side business, the white coat investor, and sticking with a passive method for investing in real estate. But I became interested in, in private real estate, you know, both syndications and funds, just because of the benefits you can get there that you can't get in the public real estate market. And so I now have about 20% of my portfolio in real estate. It's certainly much less, I think, than a lot of your listeners, probably, and many of your guests. They're all probably thinking, what? <laughs> yeah, only 20%. They're probably thinking, I'm 80%, not 20%. And that's fine. You know, I think the key is to pick something reasonable and stick with it in the long term because every asset class is going to have its day in the sun. So I invest in stocks, in bonds, both of those primarily through low-cost, broadly diversified index funds, a number of small businesses that I have significant control over, and then, of course, the real estate that's pretty much all passive at this point. Okay. No, that's interesting. You know, help that doctor that's listening right now who's thinking through their portfolio and making that investment. Or why should they have real estate in their portfolio? How do they decide how much? I just received a question not too long ago about, you know, how much of my portfolio should I be investing in real estate? And obviously, it's so different per individual, you know, depending on your risk tolerance and where you're at in your investing journey and, and how much you want to invest and all those things. But how do you guide somebody through that process? Well, I think probably the biggest mistake I see people primarily focused on real estate make is they don't have a background in portfolio construction. They don't ever look at you know correlations between asset classes, returns, how these different asset classes interact together. And so I think it's good to have that understanding, even if your focus is primarily real estate. What you're looking for when you add an asset class to your portfolio is you want high returns and low correlation with everything else. That's what gives you the best portfolio risk-adjusted returns. And so real estate meets that requirement for me to add to my portfolio. It has high returns, unleveraged, they're stock-like, leveraged, they're a little bit higher, and it has pretty low correlation with both stocks and bonds. So that's the main attraction to it. Now, there's some other attractions to it. A lot of people like it because the income component of the return tends to be a relatively high percentage of the return. For example, if you buy a stock, you might have a 2% yield on it, even though the return's 10%. You might have a 10% return on real estate, but the yield might be 7%. So for those who prefer more of the return coming as income, real estate can be very attractive to those people. But you know, for those of us in the accumulation phase of our lives, that's not necessarily more attractive because it can be more tax inefficient than, than getting those gains as capital gains down the road. So that really has to be applied to the investor. Another great attraction for it is compared to other asset classes, the risk of leveraging it is much lower because you can typically get fixed rate, low interest rate, non-callable leverage when you're investing in real estate. And if you want to do that, I mean, you can borrow against your house and buy stocks and get that. But if you go to get a margin loan, you can get a low rate these days, but it's, it's essentially callable, right? You're subject to margin calls. And so, and the best you can really get is 50% leverage. Whereas, you know, in real estate, it's relatively easy to get to two thirds or three quarter leverage, 80% leverage maybe without having to worry about having that debt called. So those are some of the attractive aspects of real estate. A lot of people that are investing outside of retirement accounts love equity real estate because the depreciation gets passed on to you. Mm -hmm. So that income 
is tax sheltered in that way, especially if you're you know directly investing and you can exchange from one investment to another and never have that depreciation recaptured. That's obviously a huge benefit. But those are the main things I think that attract people to real estate. And I don't think this is a mystery to most of your listeners. I think most of them are aware of those benefits of real estate already. Yeah, no doubt. What would you have done differently though, knowing what you know now? Is there anything you would have done differently as far as investing in real estate back in 2011 when you started this? I don't think I necessarily would have. And the reason why is that I think private real estate, you know, it requires you to be an accredited investor, which the definition for that has not changed in a long, long time. You know, the requirement is either $200,000 a year in income, 300 together with your spouse or a million dollars in investable assets. And frankly, I think that should have been increased with inflation. I would double those numbers, number one. And number two, I would require both of them, not just one of them. Because a doctor with an income of $220,000 might have a net worth of minus $400,000, including all their student loans. They might have a portfolio of 20 grand. And they're considered an accredited investor. And they have no business whatsoever getting into private investments that require accredited investing status. They're just not ready yet. They're not in a financial position where they are financially sophisticated enough to evaluate the investment and where they can suffer through years of illiquidity and where they can suffer a major loss if things go bad. And so I think in 2011, I wasn't in a position, I think, where I had any business getting into private real estate that had $100,000 minimums or $200,000 minimums. I just wasn't there. And so I don't really have a regret that I didn't add it until later to my portfolio. I think it would have made for a pretty non-diversified portfolio if I had added it back then. I just needed to acquire some more wealth and income before doing it. What should that, you know, a doctor or young professional's personal finance look like before investing, you know, similar to what you just mentioned? Well, this is the big dilemma, right? Is, well, what do you do then? Because you look at your other options. One option is simply not to touch real estate at all. Stick with stock and bond index funds until you've built some more wealth. You now you can include some REIT index funds and get some real estate, you know, flavor to your portfolio there. Another option is to invest directly. You know, go buy some rentals. So that's an option. The other thing you can do that's maybe not as attractive is go through some of these online crowdfunded, you know, platforms that will allow you into syndications or maybe even funds for five, ten, twenty thousand dollars. The problem with that approach is that you generally get less experienced syndicators going to those platforms to raise money. The more experienced ones tend to have their own network of investors that they can go to and that can write $100,000, $250,000 checks to them. And so I think you're not getting maybe the same quality of investment there as you might otherwise. Now, I did that for a few years. You know, I actually did pretty well, but I had a lot of people I knew that were doing the same thing that that had a number of investments go bad and were really kind of soured private real estate. And I blame a lot of that on, you know, just the structure of the deal, the people that go through the online sources where you know, you can get in with relatively low minimums and still have a diversified portfolio, but maybe you're not getting the same quality of investment. No, that makes a lot of sense. I just, yeah, that is a common question. Like, well, how do I get started, right? Where do I start? And that is an option for often a lot of people. You know, when you start considering the smaller portion of your portfolio that you're investing into real estate or you know, syndications, things like that, how are you choosing that operator, you know, like you just mentioned, that you're going to place that capital with? Well, I think that's exactly the right question because the key to any investment is the operator. 
Mm-hmm. It's not the deal. A good operator can save a bad deal, but a bad operator can screw up a good deal. And so I think what you're looking for is not to find 50 operators. I think you're looking for a handful of operators. Maybe if you have investments on the equity side and on the debt side, maybe a handful on each side of operators that you trust. That allows you to diversify the portfolio while having a relatively low number of investments. So you don't have a massive hassle, a massive complexity issue in your portfolio. So how do you find them? Well, it's relatively easy to find operators. The tricky part is finding good operators. And so I think you're looking for experience. You're looking at track record. You know, it's relatively easy to vet people online. You know, you can certainly do the cheap man's, you know, background check. You can Google their name with the words scam, crime, indictment, you know, those sorts of things. You can do formal background checks. There are a lot of services that will do that for you. There are a number of investing groups that kind of pool their resources together and share their you know, investing stories with any given operator. And so I recommend you look across all that and see what kind of experience people have had and then talk to them personally. Now, I don't necessarily think you have to fly out and meet them and walk the properties, but I do like to get them on the phone and talk to them personally and have a relationship there with the operator. So I think those are the main things. Obviously, you want to look at the deal. I think the best operators are very confident in their abilities. And so they don't mind things like, for example, one fund I'm invested in, you get your entire preferred return before they get their fee. And so I like seeing that because I see them putting the investor first, which gives me a lot more confidence to not only stay in that deal, but to look at them for the next deal. Bedford's cost segregation specializes in generating significant tax savings via their engineering-based studies for commercial real estate clients nationwide. Founded in 2002, Bedford is one of the largest independently owned cost segregation providers in the country with over 14,000 studies completed to date in multiple offices throughout. The most important decision ownership can make when incorporating cost segregation within their real estate portfolio is selecting the right provider. With only 43 certified cost segregation professionals nationwide, Bedford is proud to employ eight of them and takes the quality of their people as seriously as their studies. Every certified cost segregation professional has passed a rigorous test combining knowledge of technical engineering issues, legal tax issues, ethics standards, and requires a strict level of prior work experience to be eligible. Bottom line, not all cost segregation providers are created equal. So be sure to take the decision seriously from the beginning to protect yourself for years to come. Please contact Bedford's Business Development Director, Frank Judici, to learn more. Wow, so that's an interesting structure. So they're not paid until you get your entire preferred return for the life of the deal? Is that what you're saying? That's right. Well, the entire preferred return each year. Okay. Okay. The particular fund I'm thinking about is a debt fund. It has a 10% preferred. And then the operator makes 1% plus 20% of everything above 10%. And so it's a very fair waterfall structure and a very rare one. I don't see that as I look across a lot of deals. A lot of people get their 1% and then you get your preferred return. And then, you know, you have the promote above and beyond that. But I was pretty impressed when they said, you know what, we're so confident in what we're doing here that we're not going to get paid until you get paid. And I found that that sort of behavior very attractive among a syndicator or a fund manager. For sure. Anything else that you, you know, when you're having that phone call or anything else that stands out to you about specific operators that are like, okay, you know, this is one that I'm going to go with. I mean, I just get questions all the time, like, how do I vet that operator? And I always say, you know, their character is 
you know, the operator, like you said early on, I mean, is just paramount, you know, above everything else. You want to ask about track record and deal and market, all those things. But man, you got to know who this operator is. And I always say, you know, you got to feel good about them when times are bad. You know, what's going to happen? How are they going to treat you, you know, as the investor? And how do you figure that out? Well, I think one of the things that comes with being in the business for a long time is, you know, some experience that you maybe don't have if you've only been investing in a bull market. For example, a different fund, I was talking to a fund manager, I don't know, a year ago or so about what happens when the fund goes bad. And this was also a debt fund. And in the end, you know, we agreed that the debt fund becomes an equity fund, you know, as the borrowers start mailing in their keys. And I wanted to know what experience that operator had with managing equity. Could he complete the deals and sell them off if, you know, we had a 2008-like scenario? And so that's what most of our conversation was about, was his experience doing that, you know, basically exploring what happens in the worst case scenario, what's going to happen to my investment, what should I expect, how much worse is the liquidity going to get, how much worse are the returns going to get, is this whole thing just going to blow up, or are you going to be able to muddle through and get me something back? And so I think that's probably an important place to focus. We always like to look at the projections and the pro formas and imagine, you know, how wealthy we're going to be in five or 10 years. But the truth is, you know, investing is mostly about risk control. And so that's really where you need to focus when you're selecting operators. How good are they going to be at controlling the risk? And it's really when it shows up. You know, if you're an investment for 10 years, it's going to show up. It's just a matter of when. So on that same line of thought there, you know, you're having that conversation with the operator. How do you determine just their preparation or their ability to walk through a downturn? Well, I think what I like to see is somebody that has been through a downturn and hear about what they actually did. Now, the further we get out from 2008, the harder that becomes to find. You know, I mean, a lot of operators had some struggles in 2020. Publicly traded real estate actually had a loss in 2020. And most people had some struggles, whether it was finding deals or they just held on to cash because they didn't know what was going to happen. And so most debt funds had lower returns last year than they have in the past. And, you know, equity funds might have had some issues collecting rents and keeping occupancy up or whatever. But I don't know that 2020 was really a good enough test of their ability to manage a difficult time. And so I'm really looking for people that maybe this fund didn't exist in 2008, but I like to see that they were in the industry in 2008 and hear about what they were doing and, and what they learned from that, which is unfortunate for those who are just getting into it, right? If you're young and you just haven't been in it that long, you know, you may not have that experience. And so you have investors that are maybe not as interested in investing with you because of that. And I don't know how you overcome that as an operator, but that's not my problem as an investor. That's your problem as an operator. Yeah, no, that I tell that operator, don't give up. You can find investors that will invest with you after you build the trust and your ability and maybe partner with that operator that Jim's talking about, you know, that's been in the business and has a lot more experience is one way as well. But what about, you know, communication from the operator or anything else like that that stands out to you from, you know, some of the best investments that you've made? We're just, I mean, we are just always trying to improve just everything we're doing, everything that an investor touches, their entire life cycle with us. Us. We are just always trying to improve it. And so I've just taken in every time I talk to an investor, I'm like, you know, what have you seen in other parts of the industry? What would you like us to do better? So what have you seen that has really stood out to you from the operators you've invested with? It's like, man, I really like this, or I'm not such a big fan here. Well, I think, you know, communication is one of those things that's very individual. And you want to match yourself to an operator that communicates in the amount and way that you prefer. For example, a different fund, an equity fund that I'm invested in, they do webinars every month. 
about the investment. I don't want to go to a webinar every month about my investment. I'm investing passively for a reason. I want to hear about when things are going bad. When there's a problem, I want to hear about it frequently. When things are going fine, you know, shoot me an email every now and then and I'm good. You know, once a quarter an email, that's all the communication I need. But what I've discovered among my listeners and readers, my audience, is I have a number of people that get really uncomfortable if they haven't heard from the manager in the last month. And they, they're like, oh, is this guy absconded with my money? You know, And they start worrying they've been Bernie Madoff or something. And so I think if you are somebody who wants a lot of communication, you need to make sure you are matching yourself to an operator or a fund manager that gives a lot of communication. The way I look at it is once I bought into a syndication or a fund where I'm basically a liquid for the next five to seven years, I'm stuck. It really doesn't matter what's going on. I can't get out. And so I don't need to hear from you every week, but I would like to know when things aren't going well. You know, that's when I want the more frequent communication. And unfortunately, that's when it's most uncomfortable to give it most likely. But when I'm worried about getting my principal back, that's when I want to be hearing from you. Yeah, of course. Of course. Now, it's just interesting to hear different opinions about that. But what about any predictions that you have just for the real estate market over the next six to 12 months and and how you're handling investing in real estate? I have no idea what any market is going to do in the next six to 12 months. Come on. (laughs) I don't know what Bitcoin's going to do. I don't know what real estate's going to do. I don't know what bonds are going to do, you name it. And so what I've discovered is that I need an approach that doesn't require me to predict the future in order to be successful. And so what I have done is simply set percentages for my portfolio, this much in debt real estate, this much in equity real estate, this much in publicly traded REITs, this much in stocks, this much in bonds. And once a year, I rebalance it back to the original allocations. And that allows me to keep my risk constant and be prepared for whatever's going to do well in the next year. You know, last year was stocks. Stocks and bonds had a great year last year. Real estate, not so well. Hopefully this year it's real estate. But you see that, you know, some of the stock asset classes that haven't been doing as well in the past, you know, maybe international stocks, maybe some small value stocks, you see that basically the pendulum swings back and forth. And so if you'll stay in all of these good asset classes for the long term, they'll each have their day in the sun. So if I had to guess, I would guess real estate is going to have a better year this year than last year, but I'm not changing my portfolio in any way, you know, because of that prediction. What about any daily habits that you have that you are disciplined about that have helped you achieve success? I think the only real daily habits that I have that have made a big difference are to start exercising every day. It's amazing how much more productive you are at work if you've actually taken the time to do something physical during the day, whether it's lifting weights or going for a run or going skiing or whatever. So that's been my latest thing the last year or two is just make sure I'm getting out and doing something most days. I don't know if that's necessarily what you were looking for. It probably would have been something like reading. No, it is anything like that. But that's certainly made a big difference in my life. No, that's a great tip. I believe that as well. I try to get out every morning. I think it makes a big difference. But what about you right now? You're like your best source for meeting new investors. And I think in your case, you know, new doctors or professionals that are joining your tribe. I don't know that I have, a, that I've quite figured that out. I've tried to go everywhere to build my audience, mostly because I see a lot of people out there that need the help. So I've tried going directly to medical schools, directly to residencies, you know, having a big web presence and search engine optimization so people can find me when they're searching for terms that I write about or speak about. And then a lot of it, honestly, has been word of mouth from one doctor to another, from one professional to another, just spreading the word about about what we're trying to do here. What's the number one thing that's contributed to your success? You know, it's interesting. I think business is mostly doing what you said you're going to do. 
And I think that's a rare enough quality that if you will do that, people will trust you and your brand, whatever it is, your business will build. And you simply got to do that. It's interesting when, when I started looking at doing a home renovation, how many contractors out there struggled with this concept that it really does not take much to distinguish yourself from the crowd in that field. If you'll just say what you're going to do and do it, you know, that puts you right there in the top 5%. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Most people never follow up. What about, how do you like to give back? You know, more and more as we've built wealth, charitable contributions have become a much bigger part of our financial plan. And so every year, one of the more unique things we do is we gather the kids around the table. You know, we typically do this around the 1st of December and decide which charities we're going to support for the year. And they each have to bring a charity to the table and advocate for it. And so that puts them in the position of having to do some research and making sure the money is not being wasted and making sure it's a cause they support. And then we split up the money we have set aside for donating that year among all these charities. So that's one of the ways we do it. We also put together a scholarship for medical students. We have a financial educator award that we give out to their instructors. And most recently, we actually are trying to give away a million dollars worth of my latest books, The White Coat Investor's Guide for Students. So we're giving that out this spring to every first year medical and dental student in the country. Wow. Every student in the country. That's an incredible accomplishment right there for every medical student. Well, congratulations on that, Jim. That's incredible. I hope that just helps them. I mean, so many. I hope they read it, right? I think it'll change their lives if they can understand some of this early on. But Jim, a pleasure to get to know you better and to have you on the show. I know you've added a ton of value to the listeners and thinking through investing and working with operators and even how you were an accidental landlord or once a landlord. But just finding that operator and how to think through your, I like how you said, like portfolio construction. I think you called it, and thinking through that at broader than just which deal I'm investing in, but really thinking through your whole portfolio is important. But tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you and learn more about you. Sure. The hub for everything is a whitecoatinvestor.com. And there's links there to the podcast and the YouTube channel and our online courses and books and all that. But that's where I'd start is just go to whitecoatinvestor.com. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show, brought to you by LifeBridge Capital. LifeBridge Capital works with investors nationwide to invest in real estate, while also donating 50% of its profits to assist parents who are committing to adoption. LifeBridge Capital, making a difference, one investor and one child at a time. Connect online at www.lifebridgecapital.com for free material and videos to further your success.